Acts 2, 22 to 36, for a sermon I've entitled Proclaiming the Risen Christ. This is Peter giving his sermon on Pentecost. Here's what it says. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourself know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David said of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You have made, uh, you have made me full of gladness with your presence. Now, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried in his tomb is with us still this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received uh, from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured forth this which you have seen and heard. For it, is not, it, was, uh, it, for it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And I don't know if you remember the first time you ever gave a speech before a class in school, but I know that many pastors remember the first time they preached a sermon before a congregation in church. It's a memorable experience for a couple of reasons. First of all, because the new preacher is almost always nervous, very nervous. Doesn't everybody fear speaking before an audience? One pastor I read about said that uh, he had been throwing up uh, before the service because he was so anxious. Worse yet, right before he was to get up there to preach, he felt his stomach rumbling, so he left the platform and went to the bathroom. Unfortunately, his lapel mic was already turned on, and so the congregation heard him throwing up over the PA system. A second reason that... Uh, being new at it is uh, the first, uh, second reason is, yeah, that's weird, isn't it? The second reason is that being new at it, first-time preachers seldom preach well. They often stumble over their words, lose their place, forget things they intended to say. As you're delivering a sermon, it feels like you're pushing a rock uphill. And if you think it's painful to listen to a sermon like that, I can assure you it's ten times more painful to deliver one. Many pastors testify that after finishing their first sermon, they felt like crawling under a rock rather than shaking hands with the congregation. But shake hands they do, and both the preacher and the listener are relieved that the experience is over. Well, one of the best bits of advice I ever got was when a homiletics professor told us that if you're going to preach poorly, at least keep it short. Don't prolong the pain. They say that pastors are supposed to be able to preach pray or die at a moment's notice. Charles Spurgeon once asked one of his homiletic students to do an impromptu speech or sermon on Zacchaeus. The young man stood up before the other students and he said, uh, well, Zacchaeus was little in stature, and so am I. Zacchaeus was up a tree, 
and so am I. And Zacchaeus came down, and so will I. And he sat down. <laughs> I think it's likely that God in his providence arranges for first-time sermons not to go well so that the preacher doesn't become puffed up or think that the task of preaching is going to be an easy one. I would guess that almost every pastor can testify to a poor performance and meager results from their first message. But perhaps that's why Peter's sermon found here in Acts chapter 2 is so amazing. For though it was his first sermon, it was a powerful proclamation of the risen Christ which resulted in heart-piercing conviction which led to the conversion of 3,000 people in one day. Now Peter's sermon was not only successful, but it serves as a model for all preachers. And though you probably will never preach a formal, formal, formal service, uh, sermon in your life, you nevertheless present and proclaim the risen Christ to your friends as you witness to them along with your coworkers and family members. So I think it's of a value to understand something of the content and the approach in Peter's message to his listeners that day. So why don't we pray and get into the text. Our Father and God, I do pray for grace and mercy as we look at this. Help us to understand, because all of us who know you seek to uh, witness better and to give the gospel to people that we love. So bless us now as we look at this and learn from it. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You know, Jesus told his disciples that when the Spirit came, he said, he will testify about me, and you also will testify because you've been with me from the beginning. Now the Spirit has come already, and now he's empowering Peter to proclaim the risen Christ. So Peter starts by speaking of his ministry, meaning the ministry of Jesus. This is verse 22. Now Peter's sermon actually began in verse 14, where he explains the phenomena that they had just witnessed, people speaking in various languages, with the result, uh, and, and which he said the result was not of people being drunk, but of being filled with the Spirit, because the Spirit had finally come. Now, the coming of the Spirit was always given in conjunction with and as a result of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus' death was the purchase price for our salvation, and part of what he purchased for us included the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit in the lives of his followers. Now, we're going to see how Peter connects these a little bit later, but right now I want you to see where he starts. He starts by saying, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Now, his words are not addressed to Greeks, or Romans, or Persians, or Chinese, but to the chosen nation, the people who are in a covenant relationship with God. This was the nation that God sent his son to, as Isaiah prophesied, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And even if they didn't recognize Jesus as God, They should have, at the very least, recognized Jesus as coming from God because of the amazing things he did. Peter says of this Jesus the Nazarene that he was a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him. Think of the miracles that Jesus performed. What realms did he show himself, himself powerful over? Well, he showed himself powerful over the realm of nature, calming the sea. Do you remember that his awestruck disciples asked, who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? He commanded all the fish in the bay to swim into Peter's empty net. He miraculously multiplied a few fish and loaves of bread to feed 5,000 men plus their wives and children. What about his power over disease and deformity? He caused the deaf to hear, the blind to see, the lame to walk, and lepers to be cleansed. A woman who had been bent over uh, for years could finally straighten up, and a man who had withered hand stretched it out as new. And what are the powers of evil? The unseen enemies of God. How did the demons react when they came into contact with Jesus? 
They shrieked in terror. They said, what, what do you want with us, son of God? Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? And the religious leaders saw that happen. They sneered and retorted that Jesus was actually casting out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, meaning Satan. Jesus responded by pointing out how absurd that idea was. I mean, if Satan was empowering Jesus to cast out demons, then the devil's working against his own helpers and his kingdom would be divided. But if, on the other hand, he was casting out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit, then the kingdom of God had arrived and Jesus was indeed the king. You know that in the Talmud, that is the Jewish commentaries on the Old Testament, they call Jesus a sorcerer? The rabbi said that Jesus learned magic arts when he was in Egypt. But notice the rabbis don't deny that Jesus did miracles. They simply assume, like their predecessors, that Satan was behind it. And it's not just that the miracles happened. Peter tells his listeners that they were performed in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Everyone had heard of this miracle-working Nazarene. And no doubt, a number of Peter's listeners that day had been eyewitnesses to some of those signs and wonders. Well, from that, Peter moves to Jesus' death, his death. That's verse 23. He said, This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now, notice here both the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man is clearly presented in this one verse. I mean, Jesus wasn't a hapless martyr, a tragic figure caught up in events that he couldn't foresee. Rather, he was the Lamb of God sent by the Father to be a sacrifice for the sins of his people. This plan of God to have his son nailed to a cross was predetermined from eternity past. That's why Jesus is called the Lamb of God slain from before the foundation of the world. Now, God planned and put into motion the betrayal, the arrest, the trial, and the execution of Jesus. Remember, Peter misguidedly sought to stop God's plan by swinging a sword and cutting off the ear of one of those who came to arrest Jesus. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Put away your sword, for those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you not think that I could appeal to my Father, and he would at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then would the Scripture be fulfilled, which says it must occur this way? Matthew 26, 52-54. When Jesus stood before Pilate, the governor was amazed. The religious leaders were hurling all kinds of insults and accusations against him, and yet he remained silent. He didn't defend himself. Pilate entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you know that I have the authority to release you and I have the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You'd have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made every effort to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Well, why didn't Pilate release him? He wanted to. No doubt he was concerned about how Caesar would interpret the events. He didn't want to look disloyal. But ultimately, who determined that his fear of being accused would weigh heavier on his heart than his desire to uphold justice? It was God in his predetermined plan. But the fact that all this was planned out by God does not exonerate those who played their parts in this dastardly deed. Peter sticks his finger in the chest of these listeners by telling them, you nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death. Some of those same people who had greeted Jesus 
on Palm Sunday saying, hail him, hail him. Five days later, we're yelling, nail him, nail him. But Peter, what are you doing? I mean, this is not how you win friends and influence people. You're supposed to appeal to your listeners' felt needs, promising them their best life now. I mean, people feel bad enough about themselves already. They don't need you to beat them up. You're being judgmental. I mean, where's the praise band? Where are the movie clips? Where are the cute stories and the funny jokes? What about the 12-step program? Preaching against sin and pointing them out specifically? What are you thinking? Is that any way to build a following? Well, no, if you're a preening, puffed-up show pastor. But for bringing people to God through Christ, that's exactly what needed to be done. I had someone complain to me quite a few years ago that I shouldn't preach against specific sins. I remember saying to them, I've never committed a general sin in my life. Every one of my sins have been specific sins. Look, nobody needs a Savior unless they're a sinner. You can't come to Christ without coming to grips with your sin. Pastors do no good and much harm if they soft-sell the message. John the Baptist didn't. Jesus didn't. Peter didn't. Paul didn't. And neither do faithful pastors today. We cannot be delivered from our sins if we won't acknowledge that we're sinners rightfully under the judgment of God. When you witness, you have to get to that issue of the person's sin and rebellion against God. And that's why if you put maintaining your relationships with your family members and friends and co-workers above being faithful as a Christian witness, you're never going to lead anyone to Christ. Peter was more concerned about these people's souls than their feelings, and so he was willing to let them have it. These people were not innocent bystanders. Willing, they were willing participants in the greatest crime humanity has ever committed, the murder of God's own son. Well, from his death, he moves to his resurrection. This is in 24 to 32. I heard someone say one time that the most, two most important words in the entire Bible are, but God. Verse 24, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. You know, you can often tell who's the most important person in a meeting. It's after that person speaks that the discussion is over. Well, the religious leaders had their say. They said, Jesus is a blasphemer. Pilate had his say. He said, no, Jesus was an innocent man, but nevertheless needed to be executed as a matter of political expediency. But in the resurrection, God gets his say and the final verdict. He was not a blasphemer, but indeed the very Son of God. And while God would have agreed with Pilate that Jesus was an innocent man and did not deserve to die, nevertheless, he should die and will die for the sins of his people. For when he hung on that cross, he took the sins of all who would ever trust in Christ, placed them on Jesus, and punished him in our stead. Till on the cross, when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. The wages of sin is death, but Jesus never sinned. So it was not his sin debt, but ours that he was paying for. And having discharged our debt by paying the fine, there's no claim against Jesus, so he was free to go. And by his resurrection, he not only showed that we are justified, but he also broke the power of death. Death could not keep its prey. Jesus, our Savior. He tore the bars away. Jesus, our Lord. Up from the ground, he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. He arose the victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose. He arose. Hallelujah. Christ arose. That the Messiah would rise from the dead, Peter proves by quoting from Psalm 16, 8 to 11. 
says, For David says, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because he will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the way of life. You will make me full of gladness in your presence. Now, in the original context, David is pleading for God to preserve him. And it would seem like it was David speaking only of himself when he writes, My flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. But Peter goes on to show that ultimately David had to be speaking not of himself, but of someone else. Look what he says in verse 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him on an oath to see one of his descendants on a throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he would neither be abandoned to Hades nor have his flesh suffer decay. I mean, it wasn't of himself, but of the Messiah that David prophetically spoke. And it isn't only in this passage in the Old Testament where you can find references to the resurrection of the Messiah. Isaiah 53 speaks of a suffering servant who would be despised and rejected by his people, thought to be cursed by God. And yet this one, according to Isaiah 53, 5, will be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastising for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourgings we are healed. And then later on in verse 8 to 9 it says this, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with a wicked man, yet with, he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. So clearly, this servant will die and be buried. But as a result of rendering himself as a guilt offering, God will prolong his days. You cannot prolong the days of a dead man. Once you die, your days have ended, unless, of course, you're resurrected. In Revelation chapter 1, the risen Christ appears to John and says, John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Peter says this, Jesus, God raised up again, and we are all witnesses of it. Brings us to our next point is exaltation. You know, there's other accounts in the Gospels of people being raised from the dead, aren't there? The son of that widow from Nain, that 12-year-old girl, Lazarus, the friend of Jesus, the brother of Martha and Mary, all of them were brought back to life by Jesus, but they all later died. Jesus was resurrected never to die again. He defeated death and then ascended back to heaven where he took his seat at the right hand of God. As it says in Hebrews 1.3, when he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Peter says this, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured forth what you have seen and heard. In other words, what that phenomenon was, was connected to the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, like a victorious general coming back from battle with spoils from war, Jesus distributed gifts as the spoils from his victory. And the greatest of those gifts was the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to empower us to live the lives pleasing to God. Peter quotes from another psalm, Psalm 110, with that same idea of Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. 
It says in verse 34, For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Do you remember Jesus quoted this verse to the religious leaders? In this psalm, there's two people identified as Lord. The first one, the Hebrew word is Jehovah, or Yahweh, and the second one, the word is Adonai. But both of those words are used in the Old Testament for the God of Israel. But how can that be? Every Jew knows the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord your God is one. How can it be one God if two people are spoken of as Lord? Well, that's not a difficulty for us as Christians. We believe God is a trinity. He's one God who subsists in three persons. The first Lord speaking in Psalm 110 is God the Father. The second Lord being spoken to is God the Son. And what does God the Father say to God the Son in that psalm? He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So the Holy Spirit could be given now because Jesus of Nazareth had been crucified and resurrected and exalted to the right hand of God. Great insight, clear reasoning, biblically sound. And now Peter draws the inescapable conclusion. That's your last point. Harry Houdini, the greatest escape artist of all time. He could get out of chains, handcuffs, straight jackets, shackles while submerged underwater. But even the amazing Houdini would not be able to escape the logic of Peter when he drew his final conclusion for this sermon. When he boils it all down and sums it all up, he says this in 36, Therefore, let the house of Israel know for certain that, this God, that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now there's two thundering, earth-shaking truths that are drawn by Peter from what he had said previously. The first one is this, Jesus of Nazareth is Israel's Messiah and also Israel's God. And secondly, Peter's listeners were complicit in killing him. The rock band Toto sang a song called Straight for the Heart. Well, that's where Peter was aiming for with his message. He was driving home their guilt and their part in crucifying Jesus. Israel's long history of persecuting the prophets had culminated in the execution of God's Son. And when Peter let that arrow of truth fly, the Holy Spirit made sure it hit its mark because we read in the next verse, when they heard this, they were pierced to their hearts and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Now next week we're going to, or the week after I guess, we're going to consider the answer that Peter gives to their terrified question. But for right now, I want to ask you a question. Has your heart been pierced? Have you felt the overwhelming burden of your guilt before a holy God. Now, you are certainly not complicit in Jesus' death as these people were. But all of us are guilty of breaking God's commandments, and if you're an unbeliever still, you have the added guilt of spurning his offer of salvation. Paul told the philosophers in Athens that God is now declaring that men everywhere should repent because he's fixed the day when he will judge the world with righteousness through a man whom he appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. God has provided a way to escape judgment. He's provided forgiveness of sins for all who had turned from them and turned to Christ and trust in his death as a payment for their sins. That's the message that you must believe. That's the message that we as the church must proclaim. 
That's the message that the Holy Spirit uses to pierce hearts and convert souls. Whether we proclaim it eloquently or falteringly, let us proclaim the gospel message because it's the only one that saves. It's the only message that saves. Let's pray. Our Father and God, there's not a person here who hasn't heard this dozens and dozens of times. And even the people who are going to be listening over the radio and the internet, most of them have heard it. But has it hit its mark? Has it made them understand the truth that they're sinners lost if they don't have the grace of Christ? Father, we have broken your law. We have spurned your counsel. We have treated you as if you're a non-factor. And we have valued you way below everything else in our life. And so, Father and God, I pray that you'd work through this message, Peter's message, so that it's not 3,000 who are saved from it, but a few more because you're adding to them even today. So, Father, bless your word and bless your people as they've heard it and those who will soon be your people. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.